Thanks for tuning into the Refuge Church Sermon Podcast. It's our prayer that the Spirit would use God's Word to stir your affections for Christ during this time. While we're glad to provide this online content, please remember that it's not intended to replace commitment and connection within a local church family. Now, here's this week's message. Good morning. I think I'm getting shorter, Joel. Um, Reading from Colossians this morning, chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, uh, it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn among the dead, so that everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, but by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. This is the word of God. Set up here. Thank you, George. Uh, That was a last minute uh, thing. So George pulled it off really well, much better than I am. before we get going this morning, let me give you some, uh, some uh, family updates from our refuge family, uh, the full s- uh, cycle of life. Um, uh, Marge Colbreth, many of you remember Marge, she would uh, walk around and, and sometimes she would have uh, her oxygen with her um, and Marge passed away uh, a week ago Monday, so just about two weeks ago and her uh, visitation was last week in Alton, and um, uh, Marge struggled with health issues for a very long time. We don't have an exact reasoning, I, I don't think, um, uh, but Marge was uh, incredibly devoted, I, I'd say to the Kalers, but to the, her, um, Darden and Belinda loved her so well, and she was in their gospel community, and Marge was a character, I, I was telling Darden, I think Marge is one of those people that God puts in your life to go... To, to kind of throw off the scent a little bit, that we're not always seeing God work in the mighty and the upright and proper, and Marge was just a wonderful presence. And so we rejoice in her home, uh, home going, uh, and I uh, want to continue to pray for her and her family. Uh, and then um, on the other, total other side, uh, uh, we welcome a, a new grandson, uh, Marty and Cindy Weaver welcome a new grandson, James and Megan Hook, a new son, Rowan Kodiak Hook, uh, was born, yeah, clap, um, was born Wednesday, is that morning or afternoon? Wednesday evening, okay, uh, eight pounds, six ounces, and uh, I have a cute picture of big brother holding, well, wait a minute, that's not, James didn't send that to me. Cindy sent it to me. So I got to find Cindy's text. Hang with me. It's worth it. It's a cute picture. Little River with Little Rowan. Cuties. Not Little River anymore, Big River. And uh, with with Little Baby Rowan. So we rejoice with James and Megan um, and uh, welcoming uh, their new baby boy, and uh, this, is, this is the fullness of the church uh, in birth, life, death, and resurrection. This is what we do together, uh, and we rejoice in the goodness of God and all of those things. So um, we are happy for that. We're going to continue on in our series in Colossians this week um, uh, that we'll be going through over the summer called The People of God, uh, and this week is probably one of my favorite uh, verses, p- favorite sections of, of uh, verses uh, in the Bible. 
that George read for us. Um, there, was a, uh, there was a movie in the early 90s. It, I swore up and down it was late 80s, but it wasn't. It was actually early 90s. So you can't debate me on this because Google uh, has already saw, uh, sorted it out. Uh, called City Slickers. You guys, anybody remember that? Billy Crystal basically is going, he's, he's turning 40 and he's kind of going through a midlife crisis. Uh, and he, um, he's, you know, he's been married and his job and kids and everything just kind of seems like it's flattening out. Like, what's the point? And what am I, what, what's going on? And uh, the, the, the pizzazz has uh, run out of life. And so his friends convince him to go down to the rugged terrain of the American Southwest and do a cattle drive. Um, I guess that was a thing at one point. Maybe it's still a thing. I don't know. Um, but they convince him to go do a cattle drive. And while they're there, uh, the cowboys, one of the cowboys that's leading them through this cattle drive is th this, this leathery-skinned, roughneck cowboy uh, named Curly uh, with the, with the self-rolled cigarette in his mouth, played beautifully by Jack Palance. I don't know if he could ever, like, breathe well, but that's how he talked all the time. And, and Jack, somewhere during this series of unfortunate events, Curly tells Billy Crystal, I don't remember his name in the movie. I could have Googled that, but I didn't. Um, but he tells Billy Crystal about the secret of life. Remember this? And he, he says, it's this. Now, as a high school student, I spent most of the time going, it's what? What's this? Um, because... Is a harsh reality to find out as a, as a high school student. This was not a, like, a thing. It was a concept. <laughs> it was over my head. And this is what, this is what Curly is telling Billy Crystal. Uh, he, Curly does not have much sympathy for the complexities of the city life and the nuances of all this stuff. And for him, life is very simple and it's very clear. And it's got to be about this. And, and basically what he is telling them, him there is to find one thing to make your point in life. What's the, the, the one thing, and everything else in your life needs to fall in line under that. So you weigh everything else by what this one thing is. Now, I will tell you, I think that has the potential for some great advice. Uh, Certainly, it's a matter of what we put as the one thing. Uh, there's also the matter of checking our receipts and saying, we say this is our one thing, but what, do our, uh, what does our time and energy and focus and worry and money and anxiety and all that stuff reveal about that one thing? Is it really that one thing? Um, and uh, and on, the, on the other hand, a, a life of... Uh, Faithfulness and devotion is a life that is constantly evaluating and seeing what are those competing factors for that one thing, and are they in their proper place? Do they need to be rearranged? Am I putting too much emphasis on one thing over another? Uh, and um, to faithfully evaluate and realign if necessary, see if they line up with what's most important. And I would suggest that that can certainly fall into this idea of a life of repentance, that is a life of repentance. But we also need to be careful in what we define that one thing to be because too often we are tempted. Um, sometimes if we don't care, we just make anything that one thing. But sometimes we are tempted to make good things ultimate things. My family is that one thing. Okay, that's going to be hard because your family has a lot to live up to. My spouse is that one thing. My spouse will never live up to being that one thing. That's hard. So we have to be careful. What do we put as that, as that one thing? Um, now, if we were to ask this question about Christianity in general, what is the one thing that is most important that everything falls in line under, we would probably give our good standard Sunday school answer, right? God, Jesus, the Bible. Technically, that's three things. We are a Trinitarian people, though, and we could find a way to make that work, maybe. That's our, right? But if we checked our receipts, does that really line up? Um, 
as people, we can easily fall into duality we, where we say one thing but actually practice something else or we tell everybody else to do something that we are not practicing ourselves. But today what we're going to do in this letter to the Colossians is we're going to turn our eyes to the one thing within Christianity uh, and the one thing for followers of Jesus by which everything else is measured, to which everything is subjected, and in which we who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds can find both atonement and forgiveness. And that is, well, let me, hold on, the big reveal is upcoming. Uh, last week we looked at overview of the city of Colossae uh, and the letter to the Colossians and how Paul's greeting to the Colossians is one of encouragement. Remember, he's saying to the Colossians, remember, you are a kingdom people and to us by extension, you are a kingdom people. You have been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. And who is that beloved son? I'm so glad you asked. He is the king of this kingdom. In fact, he is the king of all kingdoms. He is Jesus Christ, Lord and Messiah. And this passage, 15 through 20, Colossians 1, 15 through 20, I would highly encourage to marinate on it. I would highly encourage to read it and memorize it over and over and over again. It's beautiful. It's one of my favorite. It's more than likely a hymn that the church sang, and we don't know if the hymn originated with Paul's letter or if Paul is simply quoting the hymn. Um, more than likely, the followers of Jesus that were here in Colossians had already been singing this, and this was kind of a creed and a hymn that they sang to remind themselves of the very person that they had given their full allegiance to. The one that had transformed their lives. And they would have sung this. Now, as a quick aside, I want to give a shout out to Darden and Eric who spend a lot of time not just on, not just on putting our worship services together and, and, and all of that stuff, but also on what we sing and what we don't sing. Because what we sing is important. Charles Wesley once said, if you want me to teach your church theology, let me write their music. And there are songs that we sing, and there are songs that we don't sing. And Eric and Darden both are very aware of that, because I, I don't know if Wesley said this as well, but it's true. Nobody walks out of here humming the sermon, right? Uh, and so I am grateful, whether you realize it or not, I am grateful for the time, not whether you realize if I'm grateful, whether you realize how much time they actually put into that. And some of the words, some people are like, Eric changed the words of that song. And I'm like, I know he did. We don't sing about the rapture where God comes and gets us out of here. We sing about the glorious return where the king comes home. Anyway, so I am grateful for uh, those guys who, who take time to do that. So, um, so why does Paul, uh, and, and honestly, this is not anything new. The, the, the people of God, we went through the Songs of Ascent a couple years ago. The people of God sing their theology. This has been a long time. The Psalms of Ascent, the, the people of God singing on their way to the temple uh, in the Psalms. Uh, so this is, this is what they, we have always done. So why does Paul bring this hymn up? Um, well, because whatever the false teachings are in the church of Colossae, uh, and really whatever false teachings are in most places, they find their roots usually, almost always, in either a misunderstanding or a false teaching about the person and work of Jesus. That's the origins of, of heresy, almost always. Now that's the bad side. Let me tell you there's also a good side because I believe that faithfulness and devotion and humility and hope also find their roots in a good and proper and ever-growing understanding of and love for the person and work of Jesus. Now, I get it. I get it. And I can, I can get feisty in this when someone, you know, when someone says, well, you know, we just need to love Jesus. And usually that's either a cop-out or an excuse or something like, you can't touch me because we just need to love Jesus. And the Theo bros roll their eyes and everybody gets all upset. I, I get it. And yet, if we understand fully the depth of what that is, we do just need to love and follow and obey Jesus and all he is and all he has accomplished. And we need each other to remind ourselves of that. And we need to sing these glorious hymns and the depth 
and richness of what is there, then yes, we can say, we just need to love Jesus and all that's implied by that. Because what that does, there is nothing better to protect against heresy or pride or arrogance or, or swaying uh, or, or going into despair. It helps keep the secondary things secondary and, and the one thing, the one thing and everything else to be subjected to that. So we're going to take these five verses here and we're going to divide them up into smaller sections. There's two strophes, which that's poetry talk, uh, two sections, and then there's a transition statement in the middle, and we're going to spend three weeks uh, on this uh, section, on this poem, this hymn, um, right here. Uh, another way you can divide this up, if you want to read through it, is notice the he is statements. And how many times this hymn brings up he is and then spend time thinking about those and talking about those. Um, there are a ton of deep theological and doctrinal truths in here about Jesus, and we're going to hit some of them. Um, but I want to clarify, we're not doing this in any measure. In, fa in fact, Paul is warring against a philosophy or a knowledge that says, I know more, therefore I'm more righteous. Paul's hitting that, and he's, you're going to see it in chapter 2. Uh, or I do better, therefore I'm more righteous. So this is not just so we can know more about Jesus, but this is so that we can know more of Jesus. Know him more. But here's some of the truths that are buried into this. Not buried, I mean they're explicit, they're right there. Um, Jesus is pre-existent. He's not begotten. He didn't begin to exist at his birth. He has always been. Uh, he is the incarnation of God. He is God made man, the image of God. He is both fully God and fully man. He is the Logos, which the Greeks used as the impersonal force that holds the world together, except for this is the personal force that holds the world together. He is the creator, a master workman, daily the delight of the Father. He is a member of the Trinity, the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He is a reconciler, bringing all things back into relationship. He is the Messiah, the one that all of Scripture foretold. He is the atonement. He makes peace by the blood of his cross. And he is the Redeemer, bringing all things, transferring them from darkness to light. There are so many things made known about Jesus, his person and his work and who he is and what he's accomplished. Uh, and again, I want to reiterate that the goal here is not to know these doctrines. The doctrines are a means to an end. The goal here is to know Jesus. And so this morning we're going to look at, more centrally, at Jesus the Lord of creation and some of the things that that entails. The first thing that we see in Colossians, uh, in chapter 15, uh, sorry, verse 15, there is no chapter 15 unless you turn to the wrong place. Uh, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Um, we see that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Now, we're going to get into the incarnation and all that that means a little bit next week. Uh, but where we see, uh, and that's where we see that the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in the person of Jesus. What we see here, though, is that Jesus bears the image of the invisible God. Do you recognize that language from anywhere? The image bearer of God. That's Genesis 1, 26, first time we see it, Adam, distinct from all other creation, Adam and Eve, are created to be image bearers of God. God said, let us make man in our image, plural. Let us, plural, make man in our, plural, image. Man, plural. After our likeness, plural. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the uh, birds of the heavens, livestock and the earth, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. There's a lot to be considered in two things here. I want to make sure this, I'm, and I'm going to divide this out a little bit. There's two things here. There is Jesus that bears the image of the invisible God, and then there, are, there is us as creation that are image bearers of God. But what's important, knowing that Jesus, this is plural, part of us being created beings in the image of God is community and relationship. That's part of what it means when we are, as we are image bearers, of God. Um, uh, 
And so that's, that's part of what it means for us to bear God's image. I, I'm kind of mixed up in, even in my notes here because my brain's fried. But we'll, uh, we'll get it done. Uh, Jesus has always been. He is preexistent. He didn't begin to exist when he was born on earth. He wasn't a good man that became God. He wasn't, it wasn't his faithfulness that brought him into deity. Jesus was with God in the beginning. John tells us he was with God and he was God. Uh, and it is, his, it is the word that brings all things into creation. Um, and we see here that God is Trinitarian, that God is communal even in the creation being. We see that account in Genesis as we looked at all the plural forms. And so for us to bear that image is for us to also be created with the need for relationship, communion with God and with one another. Now, for Jesus to be the image of the invisible God, it is not like, uh, it, it's different than us being created as image bearers of God. It's more. Uh, we have a lot of people at Refuge who have um, uh, worked at Boeing uh, and, or still work at Boeing. And I used to, I don't as much anymore, but I used to, when somebody works at Boeing, I used to make the mistake of going, oh, what do you do? And it's not because I wasn't curious. I was curious, but I could never understand. And they'd start telling me they do stuff with things and the stuff on them, and it has stuff to do with computers and airplanes and things and stuff, is what my brain heard. Now, when I was courageous enough to actually admit it, I would say, I don't understand that. Some people at Boeing... Uh, some of these brilliant engineers would be able then to dumb it down to my level if they even were going to take the time to do that so that I could like gain an insight and understanding to something that was beyond my comprehension. Jesus being the image of God for us, that is God condescending. It is God giving us something in our realm that we can understand. Jesus becoming man that we can go, oh, okay. So this is, this is on a level that I can, I can begin to understand more of this. It is the God become flesh. Um, Jesus is God. He is preexistent. He is fully God. He is fully man. Again, we'll get into that a little bit next, uh, next week. He has made known to us on a level that we can begin to understand. The triune God has condescended to our level to make himself known. And not only did he make himself known, not only did he condescend to our level, but Paul tells us that he actually took the form of a servant. So, bringing this all, and it's getting confusing, but I hope, I hope you're trekking with me. We are image bearers of God, and through the work of Jesus can be reconciled to God and conformed to the image of... Jesus. And when we are being conformed to the image of Jesus, we need to be careful. That does include, like, his lordship, and he is lord over all creation, uh, and there are elements of that, that we are filled with the wisdom and knowledge of God, but we also need to not discount that it certainly means to take the form of a servant. And being conformed to the image of Jesus also means a great deal of humility. Jesus is then referred to the firstborn. And if you say, well, if Jesus is preexistent, if, he's, if, he's, if he has always been, well, then why, why does Paul say right there that he is firstborn all, over all creation? Paul is not talking biologically firstborn. Paul is talking positionally. He is in the place of the firstborn. The firstborn in ancient days was the, the heir of everything. The firstborn is the one that all the inheritance passes down to. And Jesus is in the position of firstborn over all creation. He has the rights of inheritance. All right. Everybody with me so far? Because we're going to get into the good stuff. This is some technical things. Okay, good. I mean, if you had a question, I don't know what you'd do with it. Oh, you could ask it. Um, all right. But then in verse 16, what we see is that Jesus is actually the Lord over all creation. This is beautiful. By him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all things were created through him 
and for him. Jesus is the creator of the world, and not only that, Jesus is the point of all creation. All things that are created. And it's interesting, and we've said this before, in the Greek, translation of all things there means all things. Very good. Now, this is not just visible things, rocks and trees and skies and seas, although it certainly is, but all things visible and invisible. That also means governments, rulers, emotions, desires, dominions, economies, feelings, all of that. All things were created through him and for him. Now, I'm going to open up just a little bit here. This does not mean that sin was created or authored by God, but it does mean that sin and rebellion, even sin and rebellion in those domains of darkness, are still subject to God. It also doesn't mean that God just created the world, wound it up, and then let it go. We see over and over again in Scripture that God is active. He is not like a micromanager just moving puzzle pieces around, but he is active in sustaining in limiting, in intervening, and in acting in time and history. And I'm going to be, right now, I'm going to tell you, I have no idea how he does it. I gloriously have no idea. I would get you Boeing people before I would get how God does what he is doing. I don't know. We're told that God is the creator and sustainer of all things, that all things are created by him, through him, and for him and that he will, will reconcile one th- all things to himself one day. So how that all works is an absolute mystery to me, but it brings great comfort and frees me from feeling like I have to know how he is doing all these things. And even more, it frees me from feeling like I have to tell you how he does all these things. There's an old joke about the hyper-Calvinist that falls down the steps and goes, glad that's over. Uh, This is not, we're not in that realm of God as this micromanager. And yet, we also are filled with a mystery and a hope that God is never out of control. He's never on a bathroom break, even on the darkest of days. You know the plans you have for me, and you can't plan the end and not plan the means. And so I suppose I just need some, some peace to get me to sleep. Jesus is the master creator. He is present at creation. Proverbs 8, Solomon talks about wisdom personified as this master craftsman at creation. Verse 27, he says this, When When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit and the waters might transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, I was beside him like a master workman, daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. Solomon refers here to wisdom, He gives wisdom, he personifies wisdom. In the fullness of time, what we will see, not only is Jesus' wisdom the way the world works, but he's not simply personified, he is personal. Jesus created nature. You see the evidence of his creativity in nature. Jesus created creativity. Now, most of us, we can get that, right? That God created nature and we can see in the, in the mountains and the sunset and the beautiful trees, we can see the evidence of his creativity in nature. But here's, there's also the things that God created uh, in God's creation in nature, uh, nature that we need to see in addition to the things we traditionally see, oceans and mountains and things like that. Jesus created the way of things. Jesus created relationships and how they should go. Trust, vulnerability, openness. Even when Adam messed up and rebelled against God, God still comes back to him and invites him to answer and respond. Did you eat the fruit I told you not to eat? Yes, I did. Honest and trust and vulnerability paves the way for repentance and forgiveness. 
That's the way relationships are supposed to work, and that's the way Jesus designed it to be. And that's not what Adam did. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says that God reveals himself in his word and nature. Nature encompasses, nature also encompasses the mind, the way of the mind, the way we are designed to be, our emotions and the ways we are designed to feel and work. Too many times science has been pitted against religion from both sides. We don't need science and science doesn't need religion. But science in its ultimate sense, science is the study of the way that God designed the world to be. It is God revealed in nature. Now, as with everything, when we get things out of order, you can worship science and that will not go well. When we worship the created things rather than the creator, that's a problem. And science isn't to be worshiped, but it's God revealed in nature, and we can be grateful for that. Psychology and sociology, these are studies of the mind and emotions and humanity and how we are designed to work in relationship, and they can reveal how we're made. In chapter 2, Paul's going to address the philosophical thoughts of the day that, that treats Jesus as just a certain knowledge to get you ahead and things, almost like Jesus is is, a, is a, um, uh, a good luck charm or something like that. He's God, but then you use him to kind of manipulate the system and get more. And that's always been a problem to misunderstand, uh, Jesus, to misunderstand the person and work of Jesus. And one of the dangers in the New Testament, early heresies, was presenting Jesus not as the way, but as simply as a way or a new knowledge to be attained of one among many. So Paul's going to address and debunk and remind this is not about a pursuit of self-glory and using Jesus for self-glory, but it is about the glory of Jesus. And in submission to the glory of Jesus and the knowledge of God that he created all things visible and visible, we can gain some wisdom and insight into issue from studies like psychology and sociology and science uh, in the way things work. I, uh, I've talked about her before. I will recommend it all day long, the very first TED Talk that Brene Brown does on the power of vulnerability. And it's fantastic. Um, and Brene Brown is a sociologist, and the thing I love about sociologists is they acknowledge science with the reality of humanity. <laughs> and that science requires a narrative. Science requires interpretation. Science itself, we don't say, I believe in science. Science, all, everything requires a narrative and interpretation. Um, and so in her, first, uh, in her uh, first TED Talk where she talks about the power of vulnerability, uh, it's amazing. She has done all this research and all this study, and what they find out in their studies and in their research, you ready for this? That connection and relationships even neurobiologically, are why we exist. Science reveals what we've already known to be, that we were created in the image of God to be connected to God and to each other. And what she says, what underpins this acceptance is radical uh, vulnerability to allow ourselves to be seen, to be exposed. And why don't we allow ourselves to be seen and exposed? Because we are covered and because we have a fear of rejection. But is this not the heartbeat of the gospel? To stand before Jesus fully vulnerable and exposed before him and not hear, I reject you, but to hear from him, I see you, I know you, and I love you. Sounds easy, right? Uh, if you're old enough or if you've watched the last episode of Stranger Things, you remember the story, um, or you remember the never-ending story? Anybody remember that movie? There's three challenges at, in that. The, the hero, Atreyu, has to go through three challenges. And the first one is the, the sphinx that shoot the laser at him. And I think the second one is a knight with a spear or something coming after him. And the third one, he has to stand in a mirror, and the mirror will reveal his true self. Like the, 
Not the one that we compensate and put our resume on and make ourselves look good, but like his true self. Without makeup and with like all of it. I remember as a kid going, seriously? That's the biggest challenge? Cakewalk. Nobody's ever gotten through that one, right? And now as an adult, I'm like, give me the laser shooting sphinx every day of the week. I do not want to stand in front of that mirror. Anything but the mirror. That movie was over every kid's head. And some of us still have some trauma to deal with that movie. The horse. All right. Um, psychology, sociology, science, these are not the enemies. When, when they are not being worshipped in a proper understanding, they can help us grow in an understanding of way, the way Jesus designed us to work and designed the world to work in relationship. Not only in the invisible things, but the visible things. When it comes to rulers and authorities, God is in charge of the nations. He is king over all kings. And this is shown all throughout Genesis and the Hebrew scripture. Jesus himself is on earth. Uh, when Jesus himself is on earth, he does not see the Roman governance nor the restoration of Israel, uh, the overthrow of Rome or the restoration of Israel as the hope of the world. But he submits earth to the earthly kingdoms as he knows that they are ultimately subject to God's kingdom. First Samuel, when, God, when Saul is anointed king over God's people, Saul is God's man. And that does not mean that Saul is a godly man. He proved not to be. Nebuchadnezzar, who is the king of Babylon, the enemy of God, we see, is also subject to God's authority. And within any Roman province in the New Testament, which you see often, and among any Jewish people who would, who would claim for the, for the restore, uh, restoration of Israel, there would have been the presence of nationalisms at, at all time, or the temptation of emperor worship at all time. And neither Jesus nor Paul nor any author in the New Testament encourages either outright rebellion nor outright devotion to the states or governments or the rulers or authorities. I'm going to wade into waters here for just a minute. And here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you to not tune out. I'm going to ask you to not presume. I'm going to ask you not to put these in political terms and what I'm really trying to say. Just going to, we're, we're good at, we're, we've gotten really good at not listening, so I'm, I'm going to beg you to listen. Followers of Jesus can survive and thrive under any possible form of government known to man. Whether it is the most liberal or liberating, to the most oppressive, socialism, monarchism, potentially even capitalism. All right, that was a jab. Uh, there are no, hear me, there are no Christian governments. That's not a thing with us. God has never said that. Now, there are governments influenced by Christian thought, and that's okay, but there are no Christian governments. God's kingdom is not established through earthly kingdoms, but through his church and his bride and his people. And potentially the most dangerous, Abraham Lincoln once said something, and we see this played out in scripture and history. Abraham Lincoln said, and this is not a direct quote, but something to the, like, if you, anybody can endure suffering, but if you really want to test a man's character, give him power. And that's good to be aware of. The biggest danger for followers of Jesus historically, and for God's people historically, was not in their suffering, but more often in their power. God establishes rulers and authorities. So as much as we may hate or revere politics, governments, policies, laws, there is something within them that is established by God for proper stewardship and governance. So, in some way, there has to be redemptive and just use of laws or restrictions or policies. And we live in a, we live in a governmental structure that is just not in biblical times. There is no correlation, direct correlation there. Um, and we can have a certain role and responsibility within a participatory government 
toward justice and righteousness and the flourishing of all with a healthy skepticism. We're going to have different interpretations of how we do that, but we are called to be good citizens. Paul tells citizens of Rome, who are followers of Jesus, to be good citizens. We ain't nearly as bad as Rome was. Uh, that said, government, policies, kings, presidents are not even ever remotely our hope nor our destruction. They are not our ultimate protection. They are not an end that justifies anything. They are not saviors. They are not death nor life to the church. For the followers of Jesus, laws, policies, politicians, parties, this is all P, policies, politicians, parties are put in their proper place. When they are, they, watch me, the, hand, the air quotes are important here, they can be, space, a way of loving our neighbor and pursuing justice. But they are never our ultimate hope to be defended at all costs. All rulers and thrones are subject ultimately to God. Rome was subject to God. We see that God will hold all thrones and rulers and nations ultimately accountable. So it's not just be subject to authorities. Romans 13 says there is also accountability there for authorities to be subject to God. God holds Nebuchadnezzar. God will hold Rome. God will hold America accountable for how they, we, govern. Uh, and it includes present-day local city, state, and national governments. These are all subject to Jesus and as followers of Jesus, we need to steward our, steward our citizenship well within those confines. And when at all possible, as Paul will tell Jesus, uh, followers of Jesus in Rome, when at all possible, live at peace with everyone. So, we're wrapping down quick here. We see that all things are made through him, by him, and for him. Paul is not introducing a new way to be religious here. Paul is not introducing a new and deeper knowledge that will help us raise our levels of righteousness and acceptability or whatever. Paul is not just giving these new behaviors of how to do Christianity that's different than how to do these other things. Um, certainly things will change in us. Uh, but what Paul is reminding the people of Colossae and us by extension is not of a new way to do religion, but of a king to worship and trust and follow. A few years ago, uh, I was able to go to this multi-faith retreat. And there were uh, multi-faith was, so interfaith is when everybody kind of checks your convictions at the door is kind of the, the history. Multi-faith is bring them. Bring your convictions and let's talk and work together. And so I was on this retreat with uh, seven evangelical pastors, seven Muslim imams, and seven Jewish rabbis. And we did not walk into a bar, although we talked about it and how fun that would be, but Islam has a thing about that. So we, wouldn't, we, uh, so we didn't do that. Although I will say, we did hang out late at night and the rabbis were playing uh, their guitars and singing old corny camp songs in Hebrew. And so I was like, man, we're, we're so much closer than we think. We all have that baggage. Um, uh, and it was great. In one of our dinner discussions, one of the rabbis was talking, and I, I kind of came in halfway through the, it, like consciously came in halfway through the conversation. And she was just talking about, uh, in, in Judaism, there's not like one person to emulate. And she said, well, you know, we have Moses, and uh, he's important, but he has flaws. There's not one person. We have rabbis that will tell us to do this and, and, and other interpretations of the law to be this or do this, but we don't have that, like, one person to emulate. And she looked at the imam, uh, who's a, a, a good friend. He's over in North County. And she said, you know, you guys, obviously Muhammad, right? That's, you would emulate Muhammad. And he kind of nodded in agreement. And she looked at us. She said, Christians, I'm, I'm guessing Jesus, right? You emulate Jesus? And I said, well... Yeah, we, we worship Jesus. And the imam looked at me. We've been getting along great. And he looked at me and he goes, 
You worship Jesus? Islam has a high regard for Jesus' prophet. But he looked at me and he said, you worship him? That's too far, man. And inside, I was like, I kind of thought everybody knew that. (laughs) (laughs) But here's the thing. If you don't know that, followers of Jesus, we do not simply emulate Jesus or follow his example or try to be like him. We don't simply rub the magic lamp and Jesus appears and gives us our three wishes. We bow down at his throne as the creator of all things and the point of all things. He is supreme over all things. This is what we believe. He is the one thing in which everything else in life is subject to and finds their hope and meaning, whether thrones or dominions or feelings or hopes or finances or sexual ethics or personal desires or politics or educational pursuits or political parties and policies. All things are subject to him. He is before all things. And this is never believed with a sense of arrogance or pride. And if we try that before his throne, we will be put down quickly. In bowing down before his throne, we have a tremendous humility and yet a tremendous hope. Now, before I give you the assignment for this week, um, this was a hymn that they sung, and so I, I, want, let's, uh, I want us to sing our theology uh, together. This is a great old hymn. Hopefully we got it. Uh, and I want you, as we go through it, listen for God's goodness and be humbled and encouraged that all things, ourselves included, are gloriously subjected to his mercy and grace and reign and rule. And let that produce in us a humble but confident, uh, a humble confidence. So this, I love this song, so let's sing it together. Praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of creation. O oh, my soul, praise him, for he is thy health and salvation. All ye who hear, now to his temple draw near. Praise Him in glad adoration. Rest. Praise to the Lord who door all things so wondrously reigneth. Shelters thee under His wings, yea, so gently sustaineth. Hast thou not seen how thy desires have been granted in what he ordained. Rest. Praise to the Lord who doth prosper thy work and defend thee. Surely his goodness and mercy here daily attend thee. I love this. Ponder anew what the Almighty can do if with his love he defriends thee. Finally, the last one. Praise to the Lord, O let all that is in me adore him. All that hath life and breath come now with praises before. Sing a church. Let the amen sound from his people again. Gladly forever adore him. Amen means let it be.
the comfort and joy to sit under the authority and supremacy of Jesus and say, whatever may be, let it be. Here's your assignment for this week. Remember, you have an assignment for the summer. You guys remember what it is? Ten people or so. Write a list down. Bring it with you. Encourage them. Find creative ways about what they do, how they do it. See them. Don't just be like, hey, good job. Like, spend the summer, not in a weird, creepy way, but in a, in a redemptive, beautiful way, noticing the things that they do and encourage them. Um, that's your overall this week, since we're one anothering this week. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to find a friend, a follower of Jesus, and have a conversation, an intentional conversation. Uh, it can be over coffee, it can be over lunch, dinner, an evening beverage. Sit down and, and have a conversation that is intentionally about Jesus. I'm not, I'm not saying find a stranger on the street and take them out in evangelism and, and, and all this stuff. Sometimes it's hard to talk to other people about Jesus because we, we, we don't even talk to each other about Jesus. So find a person to have a conversation with about Jesus. That's it. His creation, his creativity, his work in you, some thoughts or questions you may have. Find someone, sit down, share time together, and have a conversation. Does that work? All right. Let's pray. <clears throat> Jesus, I will, um, I will confess right off the bat, it is so easy to let secondary things become primary things. And, and yes, on a daily basis that happens, but sometimes our vision just gets so clouded with the urgencies of this world that we fail to put things in their proper place. And God, over all of creation, you stand over all. Actually, you sit over all. And so I pray that our hearts and minds, not in an arrogant or indifferent way, not in a way that says, ah, we don't need to worry about that stuff, but in a way that says, in the darkness and in the light, you are supreme, and so we can trust you in everything. Sing this hymn over our hearts and minds this week. Sing this hymn over our workplaces, over our parenting, over our singleness, over our uh, joys and sorrows, over our struggle in this relationship, over our grades, over our uh, finances, whatever it is, may, may you sing this over every aspect of our lives this week. Uh, that we could rejoice and trust in you, firstborn of all creation, by whom, for whom, and through, through whom all things are created. We ask this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Building our identity in Christ for the sake of the world. That's the mission of Refuge Church. For more information, visit us online at seekrefuge.net.